Hello and welcome to another episode of Bearded Things. My name is Tyler and I am your bearded host. I am your bearded host, not hosts. Bad habits die hard, I guess. Um, anywho, <laughs> I hope you all are having a wonderful Tuesday morning, evening, Wednesday, Thursday, whenever you listen to this. I hope you're having a wonderful day or night whenever you listen to it. I hope the time in which you are encompassing is wonderful. So, um, that being said, just wanted to, you know, say hi, catch you guys up on a little bit of things that have been happening here in the Bearded Things world. Um, your bearded host, that's me, has finally punched the, the punch card for the sixth time. I, I, um, just now coming off having COVID again for the sixth time. Yay, me. Um, those of you that may be new to the show or just forgot, I have a really shitty immune system. So, Thanks, body. Um, <clears throat> had a fever for about three days. Um, didn't have too serious symptoms. Didn't have breathing problems. Wasn't like the first time I got it and, you know, died. But um, other than that, it wasn't too bad. Uh, aside from just a really bad headache and a little bit of a cough. And I have some residual shit going on. I don't know if you guys will be able to hear it or not. But, uh, yeah, it's there. So, um Please remember, if you are not feeling well, to please, you know, mask up and do what you can for your fellow human. Um, I know, I know, you know, I'm back at CVS, so I'm working in a pharmacy, so I can't expect everyone to be, you know, super healthy when they come in, because it is a pharmacy, and they're coming to us when we're sick, totally get it. But there's also been plenty of times that, you know, I've seen people coming in and just coughing and hacking everywhere and, you know, not wearing a mask or anything like that, so... Not cool. Would be nice. Appreciate it. <laughs> you know, just a little bit of common currency for your fellow people would be nice. But that's just me complaining because I've just been sick for a week. So, that being said, uh, yeah, I'm going to get on to the show here. Um, I'm going to be covering the Bermuda Triangle today. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty cool story. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to telling the tale. Um, but first... I, hopefully, when you listen to this, it'll be on Tuesday at the very earliest. But, hopefully, by that time, my San Francisco 49ers will have defeated the evil, evil, terrible Philadelphia Eagles. And will be on their way to the Super Bowl. So, if you love me with any ounce of your heart, uh, you should be cheering as much as you possibly can. Because the 49ers are awesome. And Chris, if you're listening to this, just remember that the Raiders didn't even make it to the playoffs. Because they suck. But, anywho, um, now I will move on to the next part of the episode, and normally I make a big kind of, like, you know, tongue-in-cheek, you know, Tyler's tirade, or Tangles in the Beard, whatever the hell I'm calling it, and maybe something kind of tongue-in-cheek and silly, but I don't think that's the case for this one. Um, as you may or may not be aware, and those of you that don't live in the United States, you may not be aware, but um, you probably are because it's, it's kind of big news. Um, over, what was today? I'm recording on Saturday, and so I believe um, they released a video on yesterday, I believe, of the, the death of a man named Tyree Nichols, who was killed at the hands of five Memphis police officers. Um, and it's it's horrifying. If you've seen the video, or if, or if you have not seen the video, I encourage you not to do so. Um, it's 
like it's it's heartbreaking. It's it's just horrifying to watch. Um, they just beat the living shit out of this dude for no reason. Um, and you know the guys like yelling for his mom. Like it's it's heartbreaking. It's it's tragic. It it was hard to watch. And you know I grew up in a generation that watched a lot of terrible videos on the internet. Um, and so I'm kind of desensitized to some stuff. But like hearing this man like cry out for his mom and stuff was just. It was tragic, and um, it's it's just so unfortunate that you know the state of the country that we live in, where violence is so prevalent, and you know we have mass shootings like every fucking day, and you know police are killing people, you know every day or every other day. Um, it's really it's really terrible and it's really horrible, and um, I can't really tongue in cheek joke about things or anything like that because it's just it's. It's a horrible thing, and I've seen, unfortunately, like, shit on the internet where they're like, oh, well, you know, like, it was five black police officers that killed a black man, like, it's not a big of a deal because it's not white people, right? And it's just, like, to me, that's just, like, you know, like, fuck you. Like, it's such an insensitive thing to say, like, regardless of who it is, like, it's still police officers killing people. And, again, you know, for all the people saying, well, you know, he tried to run away from him at one point. Like, I would run away from five, you know, large, well-armed, like, armored police officers as well. Like, I, I wouldn't, you know, it's just, it's, you know, he was trying to calmly talk to them and tell them that he wasn't resisting. He was on the ground and they just kept beating him senseless. You know, like the one cop was using a baton and, like, it's just, it's horrible. And I don't know how much... I have shared on the pod or not, but you know, my father was a police police officer for 35 years and it's one of those things that, you know, everyone talks about. There's this, you know, like the fraternal order of police officers and you have to back the line and all this bullshit. Um, it's, it's, it's bullshit. Like, yes, it's a very difficult job. I can't imagine being a police officer day in, day out. I watched my dad live the life for, you know, 30 years. I've seen, you know, um, friends that are in the line that, that do it. And it's a really hard job, but like my dad would always say, whenever there's these officer involved shootings or these, you know, excessive force things, it's, you know, the training's not there. The support's not there. Like they don't, these officers are just kind of thrown out in the line of duty with no training and no regard for the authority they have. And they just want to go flex their fucking whatever bullshit power they think they have. And, you know, take it out on these people when, you know, it's a, it's a five on one fight in this case. And it's like, what the fuck do you expect the guy was going to do? And they just beat on this dude constantly. And it's, again, I'm not going to, you know, keep going on and on about it, but it was, it was horrible. And it's, I, I wish at some point our country could get this shit together and find a way to, appropriately handle these situations and i know all the crazy you know blue line fucking people are going to be like well you know who do you call when shit hits the fan and it's a scary time and blah blah blah. you're going to call the police and like yeah that's true like the idea of the police are to be a you know safety force of such like not a yes the word is police in it but like a policing force is not necessary in this country, you know, like we don't need people policing all these, you know, like silly, asinine, you know, butthurt feelings that they have where they feel like they have to flex their, their power and their muscle on people just because they're the authority figures. Um, you know, they, they should be there to 
help defend the population that can't defend themselves. Um, but five on one, like you're not defending anybody. Like you're just, you're being a bully. And I'm glad that the Memphis police department took pretty swift action. Um, but then it's one of those things, you know, it's like, it's kind of, yeah, they took swift action, but then you'd look into like this force that they were on, like the scorpion squad or whatever the fuck they call it. Or like they're patrolling these neighborhoods and large groups just basically looking to pick a fight. And like, it's just silly to me. Like anytime I've seen or read about these like elite police forces that aren't like the SWAT team or these teams that get extensive training, like they're just people that they pick out and they say, okay, go find people who are doing wrong and just like send a message that, you know, Oh, we're not going to do this here. And they basically just end up beating the shit out of people and killing people. And I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I don't, you know, aside from murdering somebody, I don't see the justification to beat the shit out of someone until they literally cannot breathe, cannot stand on their own, cannot move and then die three days later. Like, there's no justification for that, you know, like he didn't do anything that merited being killed regardless of whatever he was doing, you know, um, and just seeing all the, the backtracking and them trying to manufacture evidence on these, these videos, you know, and saying like, oh, he must have stashed, you know, he had drugs on him and oh, he must have thrown him away, but then they can't find anything, but then they're sticking to their guns. Like, it's just, it's so unfortunate and it's just so fucking shitty. And again, I'll get off my soapbox, but if you're going to be out there protesting, please do it peacefully. I know Tyree's mom was talking about, like, you know, he wouldn't want that. She doesn't want that. If you support the family in any way, like, do it, you know, protest peacefully. Get your words across. Don't give the police and these people who, you know, back the police blindly and without question, like, don't give them a reason to be like, oh, see, like, Every little thing that goes wrong, everyone writes and destroys shit. Like, you know, be better than that. We got to be better than that. And yeah, I don't know. That's my take. I don't know if any of that made sense. I just kind of rambled for the last eight minutes. So hopefully it makes sense to you guys. Um, We're going to take a quick commercial break and then I will be back with my story. And I'm back. Uh, Quick break there, and we're going to get into anything. Sorry for kind of bringing the room down a little bit with that, um, you know, previous topic. <laughs> um, I kind of, you know, I don't actually, you know, like take a break. We don't actually, like, walk off and, you know, like, I'm not, like, actually taking a break. I'm just pausing the, you know, recording and then starting up again. But I did stand up and kind of walk around because, yeah, it's just, it's just you know, put me in a weird head space because, you know, it kind of sucks. A lot of the stuff that we deal with in this country and, you know, especially people of color deal with this in this country. It's just, it's unfortunate. And sometimes it makes my brain hurt how much our country sucks. But anywho, before everyone comes at me to get out of the country, uh, let's move on and have some, uh, some fun, hopefully topics that you guys will enjoy. And, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of happy with this, this, this topic. I, you know, feel like we did a good job. So let's get into it. Uh, now, like I said, I'm covering the legend, the myth, whatever you want to call it, of the Bermuda Triangle. And there's a ton of stories that are associated with it. And some of them are backed by some pretty credible evidence. And some of them are just, you know, complete utter bullshit. So you're going to have to bear with me while I sort through as much of this as I can. And as always, please remember to take all of this with a grain of our certified, grass-fed, free-ranged, organic pink Himalayan sea salt. So with that being said, let's get into it. Now, first things first, 
you may have heard of another triangle called the Devil's Triangle, which is similar to the Bermuda Triangle. And if this is the case, you're absolutely right, because they just happen to be the same exact thing. <laughs> the Devil's Triangle is just another term used by sailors, investigators, and anyone that really wants to disassociate the triangle with Bermuda. So whether you've heard it as the Devil's Triangle, the Bermuda Triangle, the triangle itself spans from the territory of Bermuda, south to Puerto Rico, and then west to Florida, and then back to Bermuda. So um, I just want to point out that that's kind of a rough approximation of what the triangle is supposed to be. Some scholars and investigators really looked into the Bermuda Triangle, and given the range that goes, like, well back, like, you know, into the Caribbean, like, closer to, like, Central America, and then as far north and east as to, like, the UK, and then all the way up to, like, the Irish coastlines. So it's it's kind of big. And, by the way... For any of you that are curious, Ireland is not part of the UK, even though most Americans assume it is. And I just wanted to clear that up for our Irish listeners out there, because we got your back here at the Beard of Things. Don't take no shit from the UK. Anyway. <laughs> I just have a thing about, like, England and the UK, apparently. I'm on, like, some weird power trip. I got some messages from you guys about last episode. But anyway. Regardless of the very difficult way to kind of ascertain the precise coordinates of the triangle... We're going to go with what is widely viewed as, you know, three points being Bermuda, Florida, and Puerto Rico. So, many researchers attribute the name and the beginning of the popularity of the Bermuda Triangle to an article published in the Miami Herald in 1950 by a man named Edward Van Winkle Jones, which raised the question as to why so many strange disappearances were happening in the area directly off the coast of Florida. Now, I also want to pause here to acknowledge my teeny tiny negative bias that, um, you know, I may have against the state of Florida that has been well documented here on the show and pointed out by our good bearded friend and former guest host, Chris with a K, who now resides in Florida. I will do my best to set that bias aside and focus on the facts of the story as they relate to Florida, even though we all know that disappearances were probably just people noping the fuck out of the state and Florida and just wanting to get away and Florida not really wanting to be embarrassed at all, you know? But anyway. So, our friend Edward Van Winkle Jones published an article questioning why so many disappearances were happening, and then shortly thereafter, more stories began to be published regarding strange happenings in the area. An author named George Sand wrote a small article in Fate magazine about the story of Flight 19, which is a Navy flight that disappeared off the coast of Florida, more on that later, but equally as important to the legend of the Bermuda Triangle, he laid out the rough coordinates that now make up the triangle shape that we use now. These were the beginnings of the stories related to the U.S. side of things, but I would also be remiss to not mention that, you know, none other than the patron saint of douchebaggery himself, Christopher Columbus, documented some strange happenings while traveling through the Triangle area on a trip to the New World. He wrote that he had seen, quote, a large flame of fire crash into the sea, and also mentioned seeing a strange light off on the horizon, and finding out that at one point while entering part of the triangle near Bermuda, that true north and magnetic north were aligned perfectly. Researchers believe that the flame was most likely a meteor of some sort, or some other type of, you know, celestial debris, but still makes for some pretty interesting times when, you know, the explorer slash ruiner of the new world is visiting. I also want to point out that according to some scholars, it's believed that uh, William Shakespeare's play The Tempest is also based on old sailor stories carried back from England about ships that would travel through the Bermuda Triangle. So, let's fast forward from, you know, Shakespeare and Columbus times and get back to some more modern tailings of the Triangle. So, 
The first big evidence that pointing towards anything disappearing comes by way of a British ship called the HMS Atalanta. That's not Atlanta, it's Atalanta. The HMS Atalanta was a training ship used to, well, train sailors on a large ocean-faring craft. Prior to being renamed, the Atalanta was known as the HMS Juno and had traversed the seas on a round trip from England to Bermuda a couple times. It was also known for annexing the Cocos Island in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Australia, and I mention these things because the ship was, you know, pretty well crewed and it was capable of making long voyages at sea. We know that the HMS Atalanta left Falmouth, England on January 31st, 1880, bound for the Royal Naval Dockyard in Bermuda. After failing to arrive at the scheduled, ships were sent out to look for her, but ultimately found no evidence of any wreckage. In April, a small gunboat arrived from southern England, stating that they found wreckage of a craft near the Azores, off the western coast of Portugal, but it was quickly dismissed. Soon after this announcement, however, an editorial was published claiming that the shipping company that owned and operated the HMS Atlanta should be held criminally liable due to the fact that there was only 11 veteran seamen aboard the ship and well over 200 inexperienced sailors being taught to sail. The remains of the ship have never been found, and the memorial is set up at St. Anne's Church in Portsmouth, England, which names all 281 souls believed to be aboard the ship. Now, Another ship that seemingly lost its way while traveling traversing the Triangle is the Carol A. Deering, which is a schooner set to deliver cargo between the U.S. mainland and parts of the Caribbean and Brazil. On July 19, 1920, the Carol A. Deering sailed from Puerto Rico to Virginia to pick up a load of coal that was to be transported to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. The captain of the ship was a World War I hero named William Merritt. They made it to port in Virginia and loaded up for their trip to Brazil. They left Virginia on August 26, 1920, only to be forced to turn around due to the captain and his son becoming very seriously ill a day into the trip. The company hired retired sea captain, 66-year-old William Warmel, to replace Captain Merritt. Once everything was squared away, the Deering set sail again for Brazil on September 8, 1920. Once again, the ship arrived safe and sound and everything seemed to be going according to plan. The captain and crew set sail for home on December 2nd, 1920, after briefly stopping for supplies and fuel in Barbados. The Daring was sighted by a light ship off the coast of North Carolina on January 28th, 1921. A light ship is just a big ship that has a giant light on it. It's basically like a floating lighthouse. They use it out to sea when they don't have an area where they could build a lighthouse. So the captain of the light ship said he noticed a man standing on the edge of the ship hailing him and talking to him through a megaphone saying that the ship had lost all anchors and to notify the company that owned the ship. The captain said it was strange because the man spoke with a foreign accent and that the crew were just kind of milling about on deck, which he seemed was very odd for the crew. The following day, another ship passed by the Deering and noticed that the ship was sailing directly towards an area known as Diamond Shoals. Diamond Shoals is an infinite set of shoals off the coast that shift around based on the current of the ocean and is responsible for about 600 shipwrecks and is colloquially known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic, due to all the ships that become wrecked on the sandy dunes hidden by the ocean. Coincidentally, the nearest island to these shoals is Hatteras Island, which is historically known as Croatoan Island, which, those of you who have been fans of the show for a long time, may remember when Chris covered the missing colony of Roanoke, and how they left the cryptic message about Croatoan Island. Anyway, the Daring was setting sail directly for the shoals, but the ship that spotted her decided not to signal the ship because they just assumed that the crew would see the warning lights and steer clear of the shoals. Two days after this, on January 31st, 1929, the Daring was spotted on its side on the outer edge of the Diamond Shoals. 
Unfortunately, rescue ships were unable to approach the ship due to bad weather until February 4th. Once the rescue ships arrived, they found it completely abandoned. All the group's personal effects were gone along with the ship's logs and any lifeboats. The Coast Guard attempted to salvage the ship by pulling it off the shoals, but were unable to, so they destroyed the ship using dynamite to prevent it from breaking apart and causing sailing hazards. To me, blowing up a ship seems a little excessive, but whatever, this was the 1920s. I don't know anything about sailing. An investigation was launched into the disappearance and possible motives including piracy, which seemed unlikely due to the ship hailing the lightship, to communism, which <laughs> even though the Red Scare was just beginning, there really wasn't any evidence of any like Bolshevik raids in the area. Uh, they also looked at mutiny, which is a popular theory, but there's no evidence given to this idea as well. And ultimately, the conclusion of the investigation stated that there was no credible theory to what happened to the crew and that it would remain a nautical mystery. It is worth noting that when the Coast Guard boarded the ship, they found the distress signals lit, which would indicate some sort of onboard emergency with like the instruments. And a ship was known to be in the area, which was the SS Hewitt, and a few investigators felt that the crew was probably rescued by that ship. Unfortunately, soon after this, the SS Hewitt disappeared off the coast of Florida without a trace, and all members of the ship are believed to have died, so there's really no way to know if there's any connection between the two ships. So, kind of crazy. <laughs> like, we have a ship that disappears, the crew, oh, they get rescued by another ship. Well, no, that ship disappeared as well. Um, now, I've covered a couple seafaring stories, so let's head to the air, shall we? Um, like the sea stories, there's a ton to choose from, and I would love to share them all with you, but for the sake of not having like a super long, hour-long episode about myself, I'm going to highlight just a couple of the stranger ones. So, firstly, with the aforementioned Flight 19 from earlier. Flight 19 is the designated name for a group of five planes conducting a training mission off the coast of Florida in December of 1945. The flight was led by Lieutenant Charles Taylor, who had over 2,500 flight hours, and had recently completed a combat tour flying the same sort of bomber in the Pacific Theater. The other four pilots were Marine Captains Edward Powers and George Strivers, Marine Second Lieutenant Forrest Gerber, and Ensign Joseph Bossy. All of the aircraft flown were a version of the Grumman TBF Avenger, and Allman Flying had at least 300 hours of flight time in that same type of aircraft. The purpose of the flight was to simulate a quick takeoff and successful turn arriving at a set of shoals off the coast when the pilots would drop bombs before turning and returning to base. The title of the mission was called Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Navigation Problem Number 1. Kind of a mouthful. The idea was that during the pre-flight checks, the pilots would find that each aircraft was somehow missing a clock, and they would have to use the principle of dead reckoning to navigate. Those of you unfamiliar with the idea, the, the idea of dead reckoning is to identify like a moving object, and you're able to find its heading, the trajectory of its path, you know, based on like, its moving speed, what angle it was traveling, what direction it was traveling, and how much time has elapsed. So all the pilots were wearing watches, so they would be able to use to help kind of, you know, determine those informations. The training exercise was meant to take off at 1.45 p.m., but, but, but due to Lieutenant Taylor being delayed, they didn't take off until 2.10. The, the weather was said to be good, and seas were moderate to rough. Radio communication was had with the local base and other aircraft in the area, and all things appeared to be going smoothly. Pretty close to right on schedule, at 3 p.m., one of the pilots asked for and received permission to drop their last bomb, therefore concluding their mission. A little over a half hour later, another flight instructor, Lieutenant Robert Cox, was in the area forming up with his students, 
when he received a radio signal from an unknown person asking Captain Power of Flight 19 for his compass reading. Powers replied, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn. Lieutenant Cox then radioed saying, This is FT-74, plane or boat calling Powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. After a few seconds of dead air, all that could be heard was the flight team asking one another for suggestions. Finally, Lieutenant Taylor identified himself as FT-28, and Lieutenant Cox tried to hail him by saying, FT-28, this is FT-74, what is your trouble? Lieutenant Taylor replied that, quote, Both of my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Flor- Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I'm not sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know what to do to get back to Fort Lauderdale. Lieutenant Cox immediately informed Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale that Flight 19 was lost and then told Taylor to orient his plane so that the sun was on his left side. The Naval Air Station asked Taylor to make sure his IFF transponder was on so that they could try to triangulate him. IFF stands for Identification, Friend, or Foe, and is used in conjunction with radar to help identify planes in the area as friendly or not. When Lieutenant Taylor was asked to make sure his IFF was on, he did not reply. And at 4.45, Taylor radioed saying, quote, We are heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. During the entire time this was happening, the Naval Air Station was unable to identify where the flight was or pick up any of the directions they're heading. The Naval Air Station asked Taylor to switch to broadcasting at 4805 kHz, which was a frequency that had farther range. When this was not replied to, he was asked to switch to 3,000 kHz, which is the search and rescue frequency. To this, Lieutenant Taylor replied that, quote, I cannot switch frequencies. I must keep my planes intact. At 4.56 p.m., Taylor radioed saying that they were heading 090 degrees and heading east for 10 minutes. During this time, another one of the students is heard on the radio saying, quote, Damn it, if we could just fly west, we could get home. Head west, damn it. The weather began to get worse, and as such, radio contact was becoming harder to maintain. At 5.24 p.m., Lieutenant Taylor asked for a weather check and states, quote, We'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas. Finally, around 5.50, several land-based radar sites were able to triangulate the planes and notice that they were within 100 nautical miles, or 120 miles on land, or 190 kilometers, of a point north of the Bahamas and way off the east coast of Central Florida. By the time Lieutenant Taylor's last message arrived at 6.40 p.m., the sun had set and weather had worsened. Taylor's last transmission was to his student stating, quote, All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, or 38 liters, we all go down together. Once it was clear that the flight was lost and didn't know where they were going, the Naval Air Station notified all local bases, aircraft, and any ships out at sea to begin searching for the flight to see if they could find them. At 7.27 p.m., a PBM-5 flying boat was taken off its own training mission to go and look for the flight. At 7.30 p.m., the pilots radioed a normal course correction, but then they were never heard from again. At 9.15 p.m., the SS Gaines Mills reported seeing a large explosion roughly 100 feet high that burned for about 10 minutes. The ship tried to search for survivors, but the amount of fuel in the water and flames made it impossible. The investigation into the disappearance of Flight 19 was long and ended with a 500-page report that concluded that flight, flight leader Taylor somehow mistook the Bahamas as a smaller set of islands 
which prompted him to fly several miles out to open sea. But he was in fact over the Bahamas when he was seeing them and that they were actually on track. Taylor was initially found to be at fault due to leading his team off course, but the Navy later changed their findings because the compass on all the planes went out, and so therefore it was not Taylor's fault. The official cause of the disappearance is labeled as unknown. As for the flying boat that disappeared, it is also listed as unknown and believed to suffer some sort of catastrophic instrument failure that resulted in the plane exploding. Interestingly, Several searches have been done in the area with planes being discovered that were believed to be the missing Flight 19, but each time they discovered they were just other planes and other wreckages. In fact, so much was made of this that a documentary was filmed just to talk about the planes and wreckages that were found within a 12-mile area off the coast of Florida. Now, as I mentioned, there are several flight disappearances, but most of them are like, you know, the disappearing ones that have no evidence are from like the mid-century mark of like the 1900s. So I wanted to talk about something that happened a little bit more recently. Um, which on May 15, 2017, a small private plane was flying from Puerto Rico to Titusville, Florida. The pilot was a commercial pilot with a lot of training and he had three pilots or three passengers on board. When en route to Florida, the pilot passed over the Bahamas and was informed of possible increase to meteorological conditions and was advised not to fly above a certain altitude. Around 12.35 p.m., local radio towers lost contact with the pilot several times and needed assistance from other local pilots in the air to reconnect to this one pilot. At 1.28 p.m., the Miami Air Route Tower Control was in communication with the pilot when his radio suddenly gave out. They were able to maintain radar coverage of the plane for three minutes and observe the plane flying at level altitude and heading before the radar signal abruptly cut out. The following day, search and rescue teams were sent to the area where they discovered fuel in the water and unidentifiable debris, but there was no sign of the plane or passengers. The NTSB conducted an investigation and ultimately decided that the most likely cause of the disappearance was that the plane had experienced weather turbulence and crashed into the ocean, despite there never being any wreckage or bodies being found. The cause of the accident is now officially listed as unknown. So, You've heard some of the stories, and again, I only selected four of them, and, you know, there's dozens of recorded incidents from the air and the sea that are connected to the Bermuda Triangle, so this is a very small sample, and scientists have studied the area and stories related to the triangle, and reviews are pretty mixed. Um, Many believe that, like, there's just weird, strange, like, atmospheric occurrences that are happening in the area that explain most of the disappearances. Um... Like, one of the problems that Columbus mentioned in the journal about, like, you know, the magnetic and true north being aligned is something that really only happens in a certain amount of areas around the world, and one of them is the view of the triangle. And so, like, someone observing their instruments and compasses changing and moving when you don't, you know, you think of a compass, like, it's always going to point north, and as you're moving, if you're, like, you're going through somewhere, and you're like, oh, like, this compass is moving with me, you know, it seems weird. And so I think that's when people might assume that all their instruments are off or they're failing. So they try to navigate some other kind of way and they end up getting lost. Oceanographers also point out to like the Gulf Stream is in that area. And it flows out of the Gulf of Mexico and into the, the Atlantic Ocean. And the Gulf Stream is much more powerful than the actual water flows of the ocean in that area. So it's like a river within the ocean. Um, and so like if a ship starts to experience some kind of engine problem, it's going to be caught in the... Um, the Gulf Stream, and it's not going to be able to escape at all, and it could be carrying dozens, if not hundreds of miles off course. Um, another point made is that, you know, east of Florida and the area around the Caribbean, around, like, Bermuda, like, they're just, 
there's hurricanes, there's violent storms constantly in that area. And so it makes sense that boats and planes would probably disappear from that area because they would just get thrown into the water and disappear. Um, finally, there's an author by the name of Larry Kushk, Kushk, K-U-S-C-H-E. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm sorry if I put your name, Larry. But he wrote a book called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved in 1975. And amongst his findings, he points out that in proportion to like other areas of the ocean around the world, the Bermuda Triangle doesn't have any significantly larger reports or like clusters of activity in compared to the rest of the areas around the world. So he just believes that it's just this overblown out of proportion that, you know, paranormal believers want to make something of this area happening, you know, so. And speaking of paranormal believers, many in the field believe that, you know, part of the cause surrounding the mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle are due to old technologies that are left over from the lost city of Atlantis. They point out to the Bimini Road discovery that many believe to be evidence of Atlantis or some other ancient human-made structure, which I will cover later, as being evidence of, you know, Atlantis and the area being in that area. Um, but, you know, there are some pretty, like, fascinating evidence and, like, markers that point out that lend some credibility to it could be something like that in that area. Um, others point out to the magnetic anomalies that occur around the triangle which causes UFOs to be more attracted to that spot, which would also cause people to be abducted. And so this is why more disappearances are happening. As for me, I'm kind of on the fence. You know, um, I lean more towards the scientific things, scientific side of things usually. And, you know, the Gulf Stream, the extreme weather, like these, you know, natural occurring things really kind of make sense in my head. But... I also find it difficult to discredit, you know, the magnetic anomalies and whether it's the Atlantis technology or whatever it is, like there could just be something in that area, you know, whether it's paranormal in nature, if there's some beacon down there, I don't know. Um, but it does kind of make sense for it to be something strange in there with the magnetic anomalies, which could bring UFOs to, you know, that area. Um, Again, I believe very strongly in science, but I also want to believe in the paranormal side. See what I did there, X-Files fans. So, I'll tell you guys what. All of my dear listeners that are listening right now, start a GoFundMe, and I will very reluctantly take a vacation to Bermuda or the Bahamas, and I'll just see if I come back. You know, if I end up not coming back, it means I was abducted, or I just decided to stay in paradise. Either way, make it happen. I'll go out there for science for you guys. I will take the hit. I will suffer through a couple days in paradise for you guys. So, but until then, <laughs> my bearded friends, this has been the story of the legend of the Bermuda Triangle. I hope you guys enjoyed that. <clears throat> I apologize for, I, I know that didn't sound very great. I know I'm, I'm struggling to breathe here a little bit. So, uh, if it seemed kind of glitchy and weird, I apologize for that. I promise I will do better next episode. I will be healthy and well, hopefully I will be healthy and I will be much more, you know, tip top shape for you guys. So, um, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate all the positive feedback the last couple episodes and couple weeks. I appreciate you guys coming back to the show. I love you guys. It means so much that we've had, you know, more, you know, like the listeners come back and, you know, certain areas have spiked more. So, you know, we're getting a little bit more out of the U.S., which is kind of nice. So I appreciate you guys. Please stick with the show. I love you guys. Uh, if you want to contact the show for any reason, like I said, we don't have emails 
like or the emails don't work, the website's down, all that stuff is gone. So the easiest way to get a hold of the show is to either go to our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash bearded things, or join our Facebook group, which is the bearded things, bearded friends group. And, you know, lots of conversations having there, trying to be more active. I know one of our bearded friends, Mouse, has been doing a good job of trying to keep conversation flowing in there. So thank you, Mouse. I appreciate you. Um, and yeah, so that's one of the best places to, to find information on the show and to talk to us. The other would be our Instagram, which is at bearded things pod. You can send us a message there directly or just flip through all the different episodes and find, you know, try to find pictures that you think are cool and finding a, an episode you want to watch or listen to, excuse me. And yeah, that'll, that'll do it. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful, you know, time after you're reading this and hopefully things calm down in the world and in our country. And yeah, um, I'll talk to you all later. Bye.